Good morning. Good morning. My name is Bob, and the sermon reading today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 to 17. Well, with Easter approaching, this reading shows the beginning of Jesus' journey to the cross to save us. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus said to the disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and once and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, Seek, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their coats on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heavens. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out who were were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priest and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the king, to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they ask him? Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Amen. Well, good morning. It is great to be here on this sunny Sunday. Uh, If I haven't met you, my name's Pete Stacey. And uh, what a great passage. I think it's the first time I've actually, uh, the the passage about Palm Sunday, I've actually 
preach on on Palm Sunday. I've preached with Matthew before, but it wasn't around this time of year. So this is fantastic. I'm quite excited. Um, who loves who's a, who's a game board game type of family? Yeah, okay, about half of us. So who, who remembers Pluto? Yeah, 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 most of us have played Pluto sometimes. You know, every player chooses a character and you just have to ask clues to kind of narrow down the suspects until they can finally guess the right one. Yeah, who's got that particular version? Yeah, yeah, it's all one of the more modern ones, I think. Um, clue after clue, uh, yeah, you finally get the right one. Imagine a game of Pluto spanning over a thousand years of history. Clue after clue after clue, mounting up and pointing to some future person. Not a murderer, but a mighty king who would save his people. That's kind of like what the Old Testament is. Uh, it tells us the story of the, you know, the beginning of uh, creation and, and uh, God's people, uh, the Israelites. But along the way, there is many clues that all point us forward to this wonderful, this mighty king who would save God's people. Now, of course... This side of uh, the cross, and we've got the whole New Testament, we know the answer is Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, it answers about 90% of the questions in uh, King Church too. Uh, but it wasn't so obvious at the time. That's why in verse 10, the people of Jerusalem asked, Who is this? And that's a critical question that we all must answer in our own lives too. So let's ask for God's help as we walk through this passage together. Let's pray. Loving Father, as we read your word, please help us to recognise Jesus, not just with our heads, but with our hearts as well, and respond to you in a way that makes you delighted. Amen. I remember the feeling when you're coming home from a big holiday or perhaps a working trip or something like that, and uh, driving back, you know, say coming back from Sydney or something like that, and, and you come over Mount Uzi late at night, and you first get that glimpse of all the lights, and you know, I love it, you know, nearly home. Or perhaps you're more like me, and it's not until you cross Windane Bridge. <laughs> you know, you, oh, we're nearly there. Um, but uh, that's the kind of mood that we have in this picture. See, Jesus and his disciples have been a big journey. Back in chapter 16, Jesus told them that they must leave Caesarea Philippi and go to Jerusalem. Now, Google Maps produced a few travel options. Here they are. Um, but Jesus would have walked. Now, it's about 48 hours non-stop, according to Google, if you walk. So I'm guessing the journey would have taken them at least a week, uh, if not more. And now in verse 1, they've arrived in Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. You come over that final ridge and you can see Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley, uh, just a couple of kilometres away. Has anyone actually been there? Yeah, a few people. So you know better than I do what I'm actually talking about. That's good. Um, and, and there's an enormous crowd, a vast crowd on the same road because it's nearly the Passover. Now this is the biggest annual festival of the Jews and everyone wants to be in Jerusalem for it. It makes the you know, Sydney Royal Easter show look like a school picnic by comparison. Um, so the roads are jam-packed with people who are already excited. And many of them, you know, living in outlying places, they've seen Jesus. They know him as a healer and teacher. And some hold that he is this promised Messiah, the son of David. And the crowds here, they treat him like a celebrity. Well, Jesus and his disciples... They probably weren't quite as excited 
Because listen to what Jesus said back in Matthew 16 at the beginning of this long journey. Um, and if you're doing the kids' sheet, this verse is at the bottom of the kids' sheet with some blank words. So have a quick look at the screen. Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the, hand, at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And this helps us understand today's passage because it's full of unexpected details. It's as though Jesus is kind of following a script. Actually, he sort of is. <laughs> because in this passage alone, there's at least 11 fulfilments of things that God had promised this mighty king, this Messiah, would do. Uh, the footnotes, if you've got a Bible in front of you, the footnotes uh, show that there's a, a lot of Old Testament quotes going on uh, right this moment. One writer said of, of this passage, Jesus' arrival is a deliberately staged demonstration, a sequence of symbolic actions designed to have an unmistakable impact on the already suspicious Jerusalem authorities. The triumphal entry and the clearing of the temple, they caused such diverse reactions in all the different people. Uh, these events, it's a clear and public challenge to the religious leaders. Jesus is claiming to be this promised Messiah. The question is, how will they respond? And that's the question for us too, by the way. Oh, let's walk into the details of this passage and see what we find. Verse 2 and 3, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. Now, is this yet another miracle going on here? You know, did the owners of the animals just let them go when the disciples said that magic phrase, the Lord needs them? Uh, were they afraid, perhaps? Or were they honoured? Or both? Uh, perhaps it was all prearranged. The disciples just didn't know about it. We actually don't know the answers to those kinds of questions. But what we do know, and this seems really strange, is that the Lord of glory, the King of God's people, used a borrowed animal for his big moment. What's more, Jesus always travelled by foot. This is the only time Jesus is recorded travelling on an animal. Add to the fact that he's had no problem walking the first 240 kilometres of the journey. Why get a ride for the last two kilometres? And perhaps the most startling thing is, he chose to ride an unbroken donkey colt. We know that from Mark's Gospel with its mother tagging along. It's hardly the preferred choice of a king. What on earth is going on? Verse 4. This took place to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now that quote is actually a combination of two Famous verses in the Old Testament, both teaching God's people about this Messiah that was to come. The first part straight out of Isaiah 62. That speaks of salvation and renewal for God's people. But what sort of salvation would he bring? Or what sort of saviour would he be? 
Well, the second part is quoted from Zechariah 9 that was read earlier, and it emphasizes the gentleness and humility of this Messiah from God. At the end of the last chapter in Matthew, Jesus said these words, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is a saviour who is humble, gentle, servant-hearted and sacrificial. He would bring life to others by laying down his own life. What a saviour. That's, that's a, a Lord worth submitting our lives to. But it was such a stark contrast to the popular expectations of the Messiah at the time. The people were waiting for a saviour to come in and like overthrow the Romans and strengthen their borders and renew the wealth and power and popularity of Israel as in the golden days of King David and King Solomon. They had it all wrong. God's plans for them were much bigger, much better than their plans for themselves. Jesus had eternity in view in a right relationship with the living God. Now, Jesus once said, what good would it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? When Jesus told his disciples what would happen in Jerusalem, remember Peter's responses back in Matthew 16. He rebuked Jesus and Peter said, this will never happen to you. And Jesus turned to him and said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So I sort of think, well, if, if Peter, who, who was with Jesus for three years by this time, could have wrong expectations, I think it's, it's worth carefully considering our own expectations of Jesus. What do we look to him for? Who do we think he is? Do we just want him to help us get what we want and achieve our goals and to make us happy in this life? Or have we surrendered our wants and our desires and our goals in order to live according to his purpose and plan? Because God's plans for us are so much bigger and better than our plans for ourselves. Jesus gave his life for God's plans so that we could live our life in God's plans. Verse 8 draws our attention uh, not just to the size of this crowd, but to their reaction to Jesus. Uh, they spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. The word Hosanna literally means save us. But over time it becomes just an exclamation of praise. Here the crowds join it with the kingly status son of David. as a clear messianic title. Uh, then they add a quote from Psalm 118 which speaks about the, the, the Messiah. You've got to think that this crowd, they're excited they love Jesus. They praise him. They want him. Now, I've already raised the issue of, of their expectations that were kind of out of kilter uh, and our expectations, what, what they might be. But I want to raise another issue here, and that is crowds. Just one week later, 
this same crowd was shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Now I find it easy to identify myself with this crowd on this day, praising Jesus. But if I was there at the time, would I have been a lone voice in the crowd supporting Jesus one week later? Friends, a good indication of the health of our faith and where our heart is at is not how we feel on Sunday morning, morning here in the crowd. It's easy to go along with the crowd. But how do we approach God on Monday morning? Now, have we kind of switched off our church brain and, uh, and moved on to our work brain or our school brain? Or do we start Monday morning just humbly praying, Lord, thanks so much for what I learned yesterday. Please help me to put it into practice today, throughout the week. Thanks, Jesus, that you died for me. Yeah, please help me to live for you, or something like that. Let's not allow the crowd we're in at any particular moment determine where our heart is at with the Lord. In fact, here's an idea. We're a week out from Easter, right? We're going to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're all going to be excited together, especially if you're down at the beach at 7 a.m. Yeah, on Sunday. It'll be fantastic. Um, a little, little challenge, a little suggestion. Why not sometime today um, just spend a moment reflecting on who you think Jesus is, what your response is to him, and just writing out a simple prayer, keep it short, keep it real, that expresses your heart's desire to God right now. And start each day this week by just praying. Now, write it out, stick it beside your bed, something like that, wake up, oh yeah, and just pray. Right from the start of the day, just get our hearts focused on God. Now, after this grand entry into Jerusalem, Jesus went to the temple because it was the religious and political heart of Israel. And listen to what King Jesus does. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making a den of robbers. I remember reading this uh, passage as a teenager and a few days later found myself at a market held in church grounds in Sydney on a Sunday morning. Oh, internally, I was really, really wrestling. I was really uncomfortable. I did nothing about it. <laughs> it. It really made me admire Jesus' courage, though. This took a lot of guts. Because this is a huge public commotion. What incredible confrontation is going on here? What's the point? What's his purpose? What does it mean? Is Jesus denouncing Sunday markets? Or just those on church grounds? Or is it about something else? Something deeper? Let's have a look. We've actually just finished going through the book of Daniel, right? And uh, we saw how Antiochus Epiphanes, just want to say that name again, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple. But God had promised to renew and restore the worship of his people in the distant future beyond that time. Well, Jesus' actions here are a symbolic act of cleansing and renewal. But they cut much deeper than that too. Because he's interfering and interrupting the very process of the worshippers. 
as if to say, you know, you're false worship. You know, it's desecrating the temple too. Now, we easily look outside of ourselves for problems, but often the real issue, issue is in our own hearts. When our worship of God is skin deep, we dishonour God and we rob ourselves of true spiritual nourishment. But Jesus' actions cut deeper still. Note how verse 12 says Jesus drove out all who were buying and selling there. He wasn't just targeting a few hypocrites, a few backsliders and a few freeloaders. He was targeting everyone. He was targeting the whole system. By doing this, He's not only positioning himself like a, a judge over the religious leaders of the day, but he's condemning the whole sacrificial system as something that is no longer acceptable to God. And remember, this is the system that God himself established in the Old Testament. How can Jesus possibly do that? The only reason. He can oppose both the worshippers and the system of worship set up by God himself is because he himself is the new system, the new covenant that God had promised would come. He is the Messiah. He is the mighty king in the line of David. He is the prophet who speaks words like Moses. He is Emmanuel, God with us. God present to save humanity from sin and shame and death. The temple was the focus of human connection to God. Jesus replaced that with himself. The sacrifices that were being sold, sacrificed and burnt to atone for sin. sin Jesus replaced it when he sacrificed himself once for all upon the cross. His healing of the blind and the lame at the temple in verse 14. Don't you love the inclusion of that bit? That's the further public statement that a new day of God's grace has arrived. They were formerly not welcome inside the temple, but now they had direct access to God through the Son of God. Grace for all is found in Christ alone. Not surprisingly, Jesus' antics did not go unnoticed. Verse 15. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they got their questions, don't they? Now, we all re react to Jesus in one way or another. Most people today respond with uh, indifference, uh, at least on the surface, that's what I observe. Uh, some people respond with hatred. But outspoken. Others respond with great thankfulness and repentance and faith. Friends, I can't see your hearts. I struggle to see my own heart, let alone yours. But we need to consider very carefully what our response to Jesus is. This incident in the temple shows us that we cannot get right with God by our own actions or goodness. No matter how hard we try, we're all going to get it wrong and sin against God in all kinds of ways again and again. I don't want to depress you. I'm just telling you the truth. What Jesus did here, though, points us to great news. 
Because our standing with God is based not on what we can do or on who we are, but on what he has done and on who he is. He gave his life as a ransom, a sacrifice in our place. On the cross where he paid for our sin in full. He's our saviour. Friends, let's trust him. Praise him. That's what the kids are doing here in verse 15. And Jesus affirms them. I love it. In reply to the religious leaders, he quotes Psalm 8. From the lips of children and infants, Lord, you have called forth your praise. It's a brilliant conclusion to this whole scene. Yeah, to the chief priest and the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, who pride themselves in their knowledge of the scriptures and who are opposing Jesus here. Uh, Jesus quotes their own scriptures that they love so dearly. Uh, with a verse that not only affirms the children's praise, but unmistakably identifies himself as their Lord. He accepts the children's praise because it's rightly directed at him. He is the Lord. He is King Jesus. He is the Messiah. So friends, do you praise him too? The confrontation with the Jewish religious leaders that, that will end up with Jesus on the cross. It has begun in earnest in what we've looked at this morning. That explains why he left the city for the night. It wasn't safe to stay. So don't miss what happens next. I hope to see you all here on Good Friday.